Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Muella. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to enter into the last portion or the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is uh, chapter 7 of Matthew. Now, just real quick, if you, if you read Matthew 7 on its own, um, it's really difficult to kind of, it kind of feels a little random when you read it. Um, it's hard to find maybe a common thread that ties it all in together. It almost feels like Matthew is just kind of copy and pasted some of Jesus' sayings and kind of threw it there and just caught it at the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount. But for the next couple of weeks, we are going to find some commonality. We're going to do our best to mine it out. And so for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to focus on in chapter 7 um, is uh, how we navigate through specific relationships as Christians. Um, this is not going to be a relationship talk, so don't, don't get too uh, nervous. But just there are different specific uh, relationships that we need to navigate through. And so this morning... We're going to cover verses 1 through 12, um, and it's going to break down specific relational circumstances when it comes to our brothers and sisters, when it comes to our Heavenly Father, and then there's this kind of right in the middle of that, there's uh, Jesus talks about pigs and dogs. Again, I'll explain that in a moment. Um, and then next Sunday, we'll come back, and we'll be in Matthew 7 again, and we'll go verses 13 through 20, and we'll discuss our relationship with one another as Christians when it comes to being pilgrims and foreigners in this world. You know, if you're a Christian, you're a foreigner in this world. This is not your home. Yeah. We are passing through. And so uh, it kind of outlines how we are to kind of um, get along with one another as we're passing through as pilgrims. And then finally, we'll end next week and we'll talk about uh, Christians' attitude and relationship towards false prophets which will be a little bit interesting. And then finally, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount um, in verses 24 through 27. It's two weeks from today, discussing our relationship to Jesus and his word and his word. And then again, we'll, that will take us right up to Easter. So I hope you plan on being with us. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we uh, once again invite you into this place. We lift your name up. We ask that your word would not come back void, but it would accomplish everything it's been sent out to do. I pray that good seed would fall on good soil. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just speak to every heart, every mind in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're going to break down this morning's message in three sections. Um, section one is going to be about our brothers and sisters. Section two is going to be kind of that weird section, pigs and dogs, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, and then finally, um, we're going to explain a relationship between a father and children. Amen? So let's talk about brothers and sisters. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce... For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Those are some dangerous words. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I want to make an important statement. The word brother, if you recognize Jesus uses the word brother, sets the tone for this first section. So as we read through it, we need to understand that Jesus is talking about evaluating, holding accountable one another within the context of a Christian community. So in this section right here, Jesus is saying, when you approach a brother and sister in Christ, this is the context in which he's giving us these thoughts. Are you with me? I want you guys to know, and I know we're going to get an amen, Christianity does not mean perfection. Amen. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you don't stink. As long as humans go to church, as long as there are men and women in the church, regardless of their commitment to Christ, there is going to be mistakes in the church. There's going to be tensions in the church. There's going to be arguments in the church. There's going to be debates in the church. There's going to be problems in the church. So the one thing we need to know is just because we're the church does not mean that we are immune to some of these things. And because the body is not perfect, because the body of Christ is not perfect, I said the body, I thought about my body, it's not perfect. Because the body of Christ is not perfect, listen, it's necessary and even healthy for Christians to learn to confront one another, for Christians to learn to apologize one another and forgive one. In fact, the world should look at the Christian community and say, man, that's not a perfect community, but that is a forgiving community. What makes a Christian community stand out is not their perfection, but is their ability to deal with each other in imperfection and forgive. The Holy Spirit empowers us to forgive. Are you with me? So we are going to need to learn to confront. We're, we are going to need to learn to hold each other accountable. And yes, even if necessary, we're going to learn to have to discipline each other or discipline one another in love. But hear this out. This is important. Jesus cautions us that there is a right way and a wrong way to evaluate, confront, and hold accountable a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus tells us in these first five, verse, first five verses two things we cannot do. And then he tells us one thing that we can do when it comes to evaluating, observing, confronting, holding accountable one another in Christ. So let's go over the two things that we can't do. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's, it's going to be profound. Number one is this. We can't be critical. Some of you need to take that one down. We can't be critical. Jesus says this. Judge not that you be not judge. And it's a phrase that we commonly misunderstand. In fact, you probably heard people say, don't judge me. In fact, some of you might have said it. You probably heard somebody say, don't judge me. You probably heard them throw around that statement. 
And here's the problem with don't judge me. Now, I'm talking to Christians in, in here, those that are walking with the Lord. If you're kind of still in between your journey, you're not there yet, praise God, sit back, just listen to us and kind of listen to this. We'll get to you in a minute. But within the Christian community, so don't feel too bad because I like to beat up the church every once in a while. It doesn't mean I'm beating you up. But within the Christian community, let me, let me tell you something. A lot of times when we say don't judge me, what we are doing is saying this. I want to feel more comfortable in my sin than in my correction. Like, I, want, I would rather stay in my compromise than deal with somebody's correction. Far too often, we carelessly use this part of Scripture to suspend other people's ability to correct us when we are in obvious error. So then the question is, what did Jesus actually mean by telling us not to judge? He was not prohibiting our ability to make biblical assessments concerning one another. But what he was prohibiting was the harshness by which we make those assessments. Jesus is saying this, when you're in my family, when you are in the family of God, we will not become fault finders, negative and destructive with our words. We will not become a church full of people actively seeking out the failures of others and assuming the worst possible motive in them. You are not the moral police. It is not your job to look for the faults in other people. My church will not be full of critics. Are you with me? Jesus' command, in fact, can be summed up like this. Judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be graceful in dealing with a brother or sister whose shortcomings are discovered or obvious. I think it might say, it might say generous on there if you have that. That was my fault. I want to say that again. Judge not is not a requirement to be blind but rather a plea to be gracious when dealing with a brother or sister whose shortcomings are obvious or whose shortcomings are made known or discovered. Are you with me? So I want to say don't be critical. Number two, here's the second one. Jesus says we can't be hypocrites neither. He says we can't be critical in the body of Christ and we can't be hypocrites. Well, what does that mean? Jesus says this. There's a speck in your brother's eye, but there's a log in yours. How can you help them remove it if you yourself can't even see? In fact, if you got a log in your eye and you're trying to help a brother with a speck, most likely you're going to blind them a little bit more. You're probably going to poking them in the eye, probably hurting them more than you're going to help them. Please hear me out on this. The easiest way to lose credibility and influence in the church is to go around preaching, teaching, or even calling someone else out in an area that you yourself haven't worked out. You ever met those people? Not in this church, right? Other churches, not here. Right? You ever met those? You have a tendency to roll their eyes whenever they have a conversation with you? Or you ever met somebody that has the audacity to come and ask you to do something and change something, but yet their issue is glaring? It's really difficult to receive from people when you see that they have glaring weaknesses themselves. In fact, most of the time, because we're humans, we will disqualify their counsel, even if it's good, because they don't have the credibility in their own personal lives. 
How many times has somebody gave you good advice, but you disqualified it? You even knew it was good, but you disqualified it because you, like, considered the source. Now, listen, the problem with harsh critics and careless judges is that they always fail to realize that we're all sinners. And they always fail to realize that they are a sinner, too. Are you with me? Now, let me just give you a, just a quick little psychology behind those who love to point out other people's faults, but sometimes have glaring faults in their own, okay? Can I give you a little psychology behind it? Number one, <laughs> number one, a person who is this way has a tendency to exaggerate your issue while totally denying their own. They maximize your issue while minimizing their own. Have you ever met that person? Secondly, when it comes to their own faults, they see them through like rose-colored lenses. And then finally, you know why they can be so harsh sometimes? Because sometimes they're seeing themselves in you. They're seeing themselves in you. And so they're lashing out and being harsh on you, but there is something inside of them that needs to be dealt with. Are you with me? Let me explain what's going on when that happens. It's a way that they can express the pleasure of being self-righteous without any pain of personal repentance. So when Jesus uses the phrase hypocrites, he's referring to someone who is using an apparent act of kindness, helping a brother remove a speck, as a way to inflate their own ego, to feel a little better about themselves. Now, there's a man by the name of A.B. Bruce, and he says this about this kind of hypocrisy. He calls it a Pharisaic vice, that of exalting ourselves by despairing others, a very cheap way of attaining moral superiority. Can I say that again? He says this, it's a Pharisaic vice, that of exalting ourselves by disparaging others, a very cheap way of attaining moral superiority. Now, when it comes to this very touchy area, even in my own life, I'm going to give you just something that I like to remember. Somebody passed it on to me a long time ago, and since then, it's been in my heart and in my mind, so I want to kind of give you guys something to remember today so that when you walk out of here, you can learn to be a little bit more gracious. Can, we, can the church have some more gracious people? We, we can have a little more gracious people in this place, so listen to this. Luke, you don't have to turn there. Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. Again, I'm just going to give you a tool if you need to learn how to be a more gracious person. This is a great tool or a great reminder. Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. I want you to remember this parable. In fact, don't let this parable ever leave your heart or your mind. When this gentleman had told me this about four or five years ago, since then, I've never forgotten about this. Hear what Jesus said in this parable. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. This is what Jesus said. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. God, I thank you that I'm not like that other man. That I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I can get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, 
be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Now listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That parable has never left me. Let me tell you something. In every situation that I judge, I must decide who am I going to be like, the Pharisee or the tax collector. Everywhere I go now, that always comes. When I deal with somebody who's being a knucklehead, when I deal with somebody who I'm ministering to, when I deal, when I look at my own self, I always have to tell myself and I always have to remind myself, who am I going to be like, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Even, listen to this, and this is tough, even when I'm certain that God's on my side, even when I'm certain that I have the right to feel the way that I feel, I never want to forget my own depravity as I encounter the depravity of other people. Here's what I've noticed. It's always good to remember the mercy and forgiveness of God in my own life so that my words of correction and discipline in the life of others are seasoned with grace. It's always good to remember the mercy and forgiveness of God in my own life so that my words of correction and discipline in the life of others are seasoned with grace. You know, there's been a couple of, more than a couple, a handful of times on my journey where I've been really offended by somebody in the church. It's a little different when you're offended by somebody out in the world, but when you're offended by someone in the church, it kind of hurts a little differently. And I remember going into my prayer closet and praying and feeling 100% sure that I had the right to be offended. And I remember praying, and I remember in my prayer, and again, this is kind of my prayer time. That's kind of how I deal with the Lord. I, the Lord's just like, yeah, and I'm just kind of complaining. And they did this to me, and they said this to me. I feel like, yeah, that's true. They did. You know, and I just really, I was crying. I just felt like the Lord was just, there was closeness there. That moment, he was totally hearing me out, agreeing with everything I said. And I'm just kind of praying, and all of a sudden, I get done praying, and I just don't feel like, I just don't feel like there's a release. And so I go back in and say, Lord, what else is it? And I can literally remember a couple of times I'll take long walks and just real deep offenses. And I always remember saying, man, the Holy Spirit always saying, you know what? Even though you feel like you have the right to be offended, when you go into the prayer closet, the Holy Spirit always has something to say about you. You go in the prayer closet to complain and pray about someone else, but you walk out of there, and I guarantee you the Holy Spirit always has a lesson for yourself. And you end up walking out feeling like you have to initiate. You end up walking out feeling like you have to forgive. You end up walking out feeling like, and you're like, wait a minute, it wasn't even my fault. But the Holy Spirit still says, well, wait a minute. I am teaching you something. I am humbling you even more. Are you with me? Um, I was in youth ministry for a very long time. I was a youth pastor probably for 10, 11 years. Dealt with a lot of young people. <laughs> Dealt with the sound terrible. A lot of amazing, amazing young people. Um, <laughs> I did, uh, I ran a program called Master's Commission. Um, there's some of you in here today. 
and um, a lot of young adults would come in, right? And um, that was what I know all my life. Now that I'm ministering with adults, I realize y'all are the same thing. You just, I think, okay, now I'm going to open a church. I'm going to minister with adults. They're going to be over those issues. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's the same thing. <laughs> but I just remember growing up just kind of with them. I was growing up with them at the same time. And remember, they would sit down, and I would encounter mistakes and issues. And I used to kind of at first be really a hard and harsh. And just over the years, the Lord would change me. And, um, and just I remember sitting with, especially with the young men, right? And it's so interesting because you're sitting with the young men. And some of you are in here because I've had those conversations with you. And... For some reason, you're just harder on them, guys, and we're just like kind of harsher. And, and for a while, that's how, I would, that's how I would react and respond to them. And I realized I was kind of seeing myself in them, and I was kind of seeing the things that I didn't like about myself in them. And so I started to kind of judge them harshly. And the Lord took a season of my life to change, but I remember a couple of times there would be young men that come into my office, and they just keep tripping over, can I be real? They would keep tripping over specifically like sexual sin. And I'd get so frustrated and so angry and like, man, why don't you just, and I remember the Lord just looking at me and saying, really? Really? You battled with pornography for 10 years of your life and I loved you every step of the way. You fought shame, you fought guilt. There were even times while you were in church and you were struggling, you wanted to walk away and you can't, and the Lord just always would repeat that. I remember when I heard the story of the tax collector and I heard the story of the Pharisee. I said, you know what? I no longer want to sit somebody down and hear their issue and never allow my issue to be at the forefront of what God has done. You know that whole thing, forgive and forget? I get that. I'm not mad at that. But for me, I want to forgive and I want to be forgiven and I always want to remember. Not so that it torments me. But that ever before me is the understanding of just how much I needed the love and the grace of Jesus. And so when I'm sitting with a young man or a young woman or an older man or an older woman, because it's all the same now. And we're having a conversation and I want to bring correction because it's not wrong to bring correction. I need to make sure it's seasoned in grace. And one of the ways that it can be seasoned is great in grace is if I can remember where I've been. And how graceful the Lord has been to me. I don't deserve to be planting a church up here with a microphone. You knew my life. You knew some of the things that have been done in my life behind the scenes and closed doors. Some of you probably stopped going to church here. But I stand before you today. The Lord has forgiven me and he's delivered me. And how can I not sit with a young man and extend that same mercy that's been extended to me? Are you with me? Jesus says we can't be critics. And we can't be hypocrites, but he says we can be brothers. We can be sisters. Regardless of what others might say, Jesus' words in this section does not call us to mind our own business. Please hear me. We have a responsibility to hold each other accountable, to guard one another in the gospel. Did you know that? It's our responsibility. You know, in the world, you don't rat on anybody, right? I used to always tell my master's team, we're not saying, well, and I used to say, you know what? I get that concept. We don't rat. We don't want to tell anybody. And I get, you don't want to run and go tell on people. But if somebody is struggling with their walk from the Lord, 
and you are unable to hold them accountable, then go find a leader that you trust and say, can you pray with me? And can you come and help me talk to this person? You might ask, that's crazy, Philip. Why do you even believe that? Well, let me tell you something. Proverbs 27, 6 says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful. You know what the wound of a friend is? It's somebody that you love coming to you and maybe hurting you by showing you something that you don't want to see in your life. What about Galatians 6, 1? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should Store the person gently. Can I say that again? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. Key word there, restore gently. Restore means that we have the right to be able to sit and pray them through some things. Gently means we don't have a right to be critical or harsh when doing it. What about Jude chapter 1, 22, and 22, verse 22 and 23? Jude puts it like this. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. You know, when you restore a brother or a sister, and when you sit down with them and point them out and say, look, you're headed in the wrong direction. And the Bible says when that brother and sister turns from their wicked ways and comes back into the fold, you literally snatch them from the fire. Some of us in here got friends that don't help you. They let you walk into the fire. And then you got some other friends that are willing to step out and say things that you wouldn't want them to say because they love you. They want to hold you back from the fire. And I want to tell you this today, that a wise man loves those friends that keep us from walking into the fire. And a wise man despite, walks away from those friends that help us fall into the fire. Now, God will do a great thing. I'm not saying you cut off your friends. I love my boys. Love them to death. I die for them. And they know that. But what I am saying is this, that the ones that are keeping you away from the fire versus the ones that are saying, come on, it's okay. There's, there's, it comes a time in your life where you need to grow up in the spirit. Do you understand? I know it's kind of hard. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23 through 26, again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Can I get an amen? A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Amen? Gently instruct. There it is. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. These are not my words. These are the words of, of those scriptures. It's clear. Listen, it's clear. The Bible says don't be a critic. Don't be a hypocrite. But once you've dealt with your own eye, it's possible for you to deal with the eyes of another person. In fact, the church wouldn't be healthy unless we had people who dealt with their own eye and were able to deal with other people's eyes, too. Now, listen to this. If you can see clearly and you happen to see a speck in your brother or sister's eye, 
yet you fail to help remove it, you wouldn't be consistent with what the Bible is calling brotherly love. Think about this statement. When it comes to the body of Christ, not saying anything is just as harmful as saying something in the wrong way. When it comes to the body of Christ, not saying anything is just as harmful as saying something in the wrong way. If inspired church is going to be patterned after the biblical model for church, then we're going to become a church that learns to reprove, that learns to correct one another in love. In all our attitudes and behaviors towards one another, we neither are to play the role of the critic or the hypocrite, but the brother. Caring for others so much that we first attend to ourselves and then seek to build others up by helping them see too. I like what Pastor John Stott says. Alluding to someone who has sinned, we should not come as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines, yes, and even more as a loving brother anxious to rescue and restore them. That powerful? Yeah. Alluding to someone who has sinned, we should not come as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. Yes, even more as a loving brother anxious to rescue and restore. This is what brotherly love looks like. And this is what Jesus is addressing us in the first portion of this text. Now let's move forward. The text takes a odd, and we just use the word harsh, but kind of a harsh turn when Jesus makes an interesting observation and statement in verse 6. Are you guys with me? You guys are doing good. He says this, and after I read it, you guys are going to be like, what is this? Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus goes from brothers and sisters to dogs and pigs. Now, if you've read any of the scriptures or have seen the life of Christ in the Gospels, you will know that Jesus doesn't pull any punches. There are moments and times where he loves the unlovable. He rescues those that nobody else wants to rescue. He will go down low to bring somebody who's in sin up. But there are other times where he'll use words like, you hypocrite, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. You know what he meant by that? He says, you look pretty on the outside, but inside it's just dead men's bones. It's safe to say that Jesus called a spade a spade. Amen? But here's what I want you to know. In the very first section, Jesus was talking about our interaction with brothers and sisters. But in this section, he's talking about our interaction with those that are hostile towards the gospel. Now, before we get into the dog and pig metaphor, I want to set the tone um, for something that's very important. A biblical principle is very important. Now, occasionally, we will run into those who will not be very grateful for our criticism and correction, no matter how gracious we gave it. Amen? Occasionally we run into those that we could be as gracious and as truthful and honest as possible, but they will not appreciate what we have to say. I want you to listen to Proverbs 9, 8. It says this, 
do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. My whole prayer this week has been, Lord, because I know I hate criticism. Somebody sits me down and says, Philip, I got something to tell you. And if the first thing is negative, I can already feel myself tightening up. The walls are building up. I'm feeling rejected. All of those issues are coming up. It's so hard for me to let somebody say, okay, just critique me to this day. I can. So I want you to know what happens to us all. But my prayer to this day has been this. A wise man appreciates criticism. A wise man appreciates criticism. A wise man, and I'll add this to it. A wiser man appreciates criticism no matter the package. Even if it comes at you crazy, you do your best to try to draw out some truth. We need to learn to grow in every situation. Mother Teresa, was, there was a book written about her. Somebody was criticizing her because Mother Teresa and her covenant, they live by faith. They promised never to raise funds for anything. They made a promise before the Lord. You know why they made this promise? Mother Teresa made this promise because she believed that if it was the Lord's call, then it would be his bill. So her covenant and her group of ministers from this day, from the time that she's established to right now, to this time right now, they do not depend upon asking people come and give them. God has always done that for them. Is that amazing? That's amazing. Well, somebody wrote an article about her. Matter of fact, he's a CNN journalist. Praise God for CNN. Um, no, <laughs> praise God for them. Um, he's a CNN journalist, and um, he wrote an article, and in that article, he criticized her, saying that she takes money from people, from evil people. In other words, she takes money from people, and she doesn't care where she gets that money from, because she had found out there are a couple of places that had given her money that have kind of shady pasts. Are you with me? Not only to write an article, but then he writes this entire book criticizing her. So Mother Teresa hears about it, and you know what happens? She purchases the book for, the entire, for, her, entire, for her entire group, and f- actually, I think they purchased one book, and they passed it around for an entire year, and they all read it, highlighted it, underlined it, wrote notes. And they all came back together, and they said, well, what do you feel about this man? She goes, he's forgiven. He's forgiven. In fact, tell him he's forgiven. For some reason, it got back to him that he's forgiven. He got more angry because <laughs> he felt like he didn't need to be forgiven. Like, what do I need to be forgiven for? But she said he's forgiven. But here's what they did. The ladies would gather together, and they said, this book is teaching us how to be more humble. Wow. So they took a book that wanted to destroy. I mean, look, if you're going to put anyone down, don't put Mother Teresa down, right? <laughs> I mean, look, publican versus Pharisee, I won't even go to some places she's been. You know what I'm saying? You, a lot of us won't even touch some people she's touched physically, hug some people she's hugged. Right? I can't believe anybody had the audacity to do that, but somebody did. And instead of her kind of clapping back, you know what she did? She passed it around, they came together, and they learned from it on how they can be humble. My thing is this, a wise person not only receives criticism, but a wise person receives it even if it comes from an individual or from an instrument that don't feel too good. Maybe they weren't very graceful. Maybe they were very harsh. It doesn't mean you disqualify it. You should still always seek to find the truth in it. Is that powerful? That's not my story. It's her story. Gia says, don't give dogs holy things and don't give pigs valuable things. Because dogs like scraps. 
They prefer scraps. They prefer leftovers. Pigs, they like the mud. They prefer the mud. So if a good thing was thrown at them, they would prefer a scrap over a good thing. They would prefer the mud over a good thing. Are you with me? Scripture says, like a dog returns to vomit, so we return to our sins. You ever seen a dog go back to its vomit? And you're thinking to yourself, what an animal. This is why you don't have, you're not very smart. And you think about how righteous you are. I am a human. I am not an animal. But the scripture uses that metaphor for our own lives. So those of us that go back to those things that used to keep us in bondage. We long for those things. We desire those things. And look, I'm not here to put you down, but the scripture says metaphorically, when God sees us, like why would you return to something that's not good for you? When you see a dog going back to its vomit. And you say to yourself, why do you do that? So many of us who are praying and toiling for you, saying, why are you going back to the thing that wants to destroy you? It's not good for you. It's not healthy for you. I heard it said like this. If people have had plenty of opportunity to hear the truth but do not respond to it, if they stubbornly turn their backs on Christ, if, in other words, they cast themselves in the role of a dog or a pig, We are not to go on and on with them, for then we cheapen God's gospel by letting them trample it under their feet. Can anything be more depraved than to make, to make, I'm sorry, can anything be more depraved than to mistake God's precious pearl for things, for something that's not valuable? Can there be anything lower than treating God's precious pearl as something that is not valuable? Pearl vomit, I'll choose the vomit. Now, we all do it, and we all go back and forth. I want to remind us, it's those that are hostile and those that are stubborn and continue to reject the truth. God says, after a while, it's not worth it. It kind of applies in the face of what we commonly hear, don't we? Like, wait a minute, God's love, and and why did Jesus put this? Because God's love, I think sometimes we have a shallow understanding of love. And we preach shallow understanding of love. And when, when the going gets tough, the church walks away because, wait, that's not love. God's like, wait a minute. I don't think you truly understand the depths of my love and the things that I will do and say to invite you into repentance. Are you with me? Yeah. So I want to make this statement before we move on because I recognize it was a little harsh. To give up on people is a serious step to take. And even in my own life, I don't ever really, I, up until this point in my ministry, I've never really given up on somebody. You could probably go 30, 40, 50 years, and maybe one or two may fit that bill. Maybe some of us have been around some people that are really hostile. Maybe there's a little bit more than that. But what I'm saying is it's not a common thing. This teaching is for exceptional situations, but our normal Christian duty is to be patient and preserve with other people as God has been patient and preserved with you, right? And that's the story of the publican and the Pharisee, right? The tax collector and the Pharisee. Just like God has been patient for you, be patient with other people. Last section here. We talked about brothers and sisters in Christ. We talked about those that are hostile to the gospel. And finally, we're going to talk about Father and children. Again, I know it kind of feels like this thing's copy and paste, but we're, we're, we're going to work through it. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Come on, somebody say amen to that. 
<laughs> Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, who are sinners, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, I was thinking about this. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, and it's just really been on my heart personally just to share it with you. How many things are out there that are ours that we don't have because we never ask for them? How many things in your life that are just laying out there that God says, these are yours, I just want, to, I want you to ask? And then the question is, well, why do we ask? Why do we have to ask? Because God wants you to come in humility and understand your total dependence on him. Are you with me? Now, there's three points. I'm going to rush through this quickly. Three points I want to make regarding this section right here. Number one, Jesus attaches promises to asking, seeking, and knocking. In other words, and I think I just said it, what a travesty it is to not even try. How many gifts are laying because we haven't asked? How many doors are unopened because we haven't knocked? How many answers are left and not given? How many unopened doors? Because we don't try. God wants us to ask. Number two, Jesus' promises are given, but I want you to know they're not universal promises. I'm sorry, that's, they are universal promises. He says, everyone who asks, everyone who seeks, everyone who knocks. He doesn't say, well, this particular person who's been really good for the last couple of months, you've been doing everything right, you are a perfect person, you've been walking in my love, you've been going to church every Sunday, you can ask, but no, you haven't been to church in a while, you've been doing your own thing, you cannot. Jesus says, everyone, everyone who asks, everyone who knocks, the person who's been the furthest away from church, the person who's been the furthest away, quote, unquote, from living a life in Christ. He says, even in your mud, you can knock, you can ask, you can seek, and I won't shut the door to you. In your humility, if you will repent, I'll open that door. And then he says, look, I want to give you things so bad. Think about your own fathers and mothers. Think about you, a mother or a father, when you're in prayer and asking God for things. You're asking him for transformation. You're asking him for greater things in your life. You're asking him to develop you and move you and conform you into the image of Christ. You might even be asking him for a better job. I want you to know when you come to God, you come to him as Abba, which means Father. And I want you to understand the depth. Jesus says Abba, and then he says you can use that word too. I want you to understand how powerful that word is. The word Abba was an everyday word. It was a homely family word. No Jew during that time would have dared address God in this manner. Yet this is how Jesus always did it. It's too common. It's too normal. It's, it's, I can't address God in this way. Have you ever went to try to pray for him? You feel like he's too far away. He's too high and mighty. I'm not good enough. And Jesus says, no, I call him Abba. I call him Daddy because he's close to me. And guess what? You can call him that too. I don't want to disrespect you, God. Sorry, sir. Sometimes we cheat. Sorry, sir. I'm sorry. No, no. Call me dad because I long to give to you like a father gives to his son or to his daughter. 
If we belong to Jesus, God is our Abba. We are his children. And prayers reach him like a child's request reaches the ears of his father. Philip does this little baby Philip. He, um, when he walks to me, and he does this, which means gimme, it's like he walks to me, and he's just like, and I know he don't want love. I have like a chocolate bar. And my, my son goes, he likes to eat. So when we have food and we like don't eat at the table, we'll take it down. He's just like, he's just waiting, just waiting. And he's just like, right? And then I notice that he doesn't give me a kiss unless there's food around. So I know that when he comes to me like this, I know I can be like, come on, Phil, give me a kiss. And he's like. And he'll be like, nothing else. I try to say, and then like when I come home from work, I'm like, Papa. And he's like. He tries to act busy. I mean, he'll yell and say, I'm like, give me a kiss. And he's just like, but when I got food or the dinner plate, he's just like. <laughs> Jamila's like, don't, I just brushed his teeth. My baby's so good. She brushes his teeth. She started, brush, he had no teeth. She was brushing. She was just like. <laughs> and then we went to the dentist and it was really good. The dentist's like, man, you do a great job. And I was like, oh, he just reinforced that. So she, my wife, man, she's. So she just brushes teeth. She said, don't give him chocolate. You probably shouldn't give a kid chocolate anyway. It's late at night. And lately, I've been having a chocolate. Yeah. I've been having a chocolate thing. And so last night, I had some chocolate. And um, Jamila told me no. But he was, he was this. And he was coming towards me. And so like, I gave him just a little. And then he like, um, uh, I'm like, don't tell on me. He's like, um, 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 right? And he's running around the house. And he, because he does this thing when he wants to eat, he goes, um, um. And then when he's angry, he's like, um, when you don't give him food, he's like, um, um, he's mad. And so he's like, um, Jamila's like, did you give him some? I'm like, yeah, because he's like, um, um, um. And he comes to me again, I give him another little piece. But I, um, I take that with me into my prayer closet. (laughs) And I just understand a, a small portion of how the heavenly father feels towards his children. Are you with me? Now, some of us in here, I recognize maybe your fathers didn't give you anything good. Some of us in here, we're in a day and age where there's a lot of brokenness. Maybe our fathers left us or maybe our fathers, when we asked for a fish, they gave us a snake. We asked for a stone and they gave us something else. I understand that. It's difficult for some of us to even understand that. But I want you to know that God is your father. that He's your father. Now, whatever your earthly father couldn't do for you, the heavenly father can do for you. And so it may be hard for you to even get this concept. But what Jesus is trying to get you to see is that God wants to be seen as your father. He wants to be seen as your father. And what maybe your father couldn't give you, he can give you. I know it's getting late and I'm, I'm going to invite just worship and we're going to pray and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I'm honestly going to go quickly and we're going to be through in about five minutes but <laughs> thank you can I tell you this one more thing I need to say and you know me I always gotta I'm all lovey-dovey I'm like, okay I gotta hit them hard with something it's too everyone feeling too good in here <laughs> but I want to say this sometimes the answer of God is a no a closed door and not an open one And I want you to know this. Any answer God gives is good. It's not God, give me the good answer. It's God, any answer you give is good. And so if you knock, seek, and ask, and he says, no, door closed, 
instead of us walking away and feeling rejected, we should feel accepted. I once heard, uh, and I think I, I put this on, I heard this, seen this on Twitter and I had to repost, but it's when one door closes, the world opens up to you. Do you, get, do you understand the idea that sometimes we can get so tunnel vision and the Lord will shut that door and we were so focused on it, we can get so upset and angry and he's like, wait a minute, I'm shutting this door because that's not the best for you. Sometimes the affirmative of answered prayer comes in the form of negative. So it may not be a yes to the asking or an open door to the knocking, but instead God's favor can be found in a no and a closed door. That is called maturity. I'm going to conclude with this. Jesus, in this kind of odd section, We'll continue to move forward and we'll continue to embrace it in the next couple of Sundays. But I want to finish with, he then tells us, he goes from brothers and sisters, dogs and pigs, to a father to his children, and then the golden rule. We're all kind of familiar with that. Chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Jesus says this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophet. Hear me out. Ready for this? A love for God produces a love for self. And a strong love for self always displays outwardly in a strong love for others. A love for God produces a love for self. And a strong love for self always displays outwardly in a strong love for our neighbors. Christianity is not an individualistic value system or lifestyle, but it's a community thing. It's a family thing. The two strongest elements in our Christian awareness should be God as Abba and our fellow Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. You hear that? The two strongest elements in our Christian walk should be God as Abba and our fellow Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. The more we see God as dad, the more we find ourselves open to receive his good gifts and his goodwill. And the more we see each other as family, the more willing we feel, the more willing we are to feel safe to receive each other's forgiveness and correction. Although in some rare occasions we may find ourselves confronting dogs and pigs, we must never forget our responsibility to those outside of the family who we long to see brought in to the family. There's like a threefold thing I'm ending here and then we're praying. Number one is when you see dad, when you see, the, when you see God as Abba, you're not afraid to ask. And you're not afraid to receive. And when you see each other as brothers and sisters, you're not afraid of the gracious correction that comes in the form of love. Steering you back into the right path, snatching you from hell, as Jude would say, out of the fire. And lastly, the world, although you may confront an occasional dog or pig that throws the good stuff in the mud, for the most part, we must as a church never forget our responsibility to long to bring those on the outside in to be family. Because that's what God wants. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you.
We worship you. Right now, I just uh, pray if there's uh, anybody in this building this morning that's having a rough time seeing God as Abba. Maybe there's some father issues in here. Maybe your own father. The example that he has set has not been a positive example. And, sh and so you struggle. You struggle to receive gifts from God struggle to receive good things you don't believe that there's anything good for you I just want to invite you today to tear down that thought process and to slowly begin to build one up that looks at your heavenly father someone who loves you and someone who wants to answer and open I just pray a blessing over you Lord I pray a blessing over everyone in here that's been convicted by your word I pray that we'd be a people that invite correction. I pray we'd be a wise people. And I pray that this church, even though it's a church plant and we're several months into this, we're still learning to know each other. I pray that we would grow in family. We would grow in family. So, Father, I pray a blessing. And what we're going to do is we're just, I'm just going to ask, we're going to end in worship. We're going to end in worship this morning. So maybe if we could just sing one quick melody and then we can, we can head out. Bless you guys to head out. But as we worship, can you just think about whatever the Holy Spirit has spoken to you or highlighted to you today and just kind of in your own way right there privately respond to him? Again, we'll just worship and we'll be really brief. And, but I just want you to have a chance to privately respond to the Spirit's words to you this morning. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com.